Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton, and I am the managing editor of Providence. And today I am speaking with Miriam Waba and Adela Kohab, and we are going to be talking about their new show called Americanish Daughters of Diaspora. Miriam is with the Philos Project. Regular listeners of the podcast and readers of Providence will probably be familiar with Philos Project. And Adela is a law student. So first off, thank you two so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us, Mark. Of course, thank you. My first question is about the show. And uh, first off, like, how did the show get started? And what is the premise and purpose? And so I don't know, Miriam, do you want to go first? Sure thing. Thanks so much for having us again. Um, it's really a pleasure to be talking to you. Um, so Americanish started when uh, a mutual friend introduced Adela and I. And Adela is a Sephardic Jew of Lebanese-Syrian descent, and her family lives in Mexico. And um, I'm a Coptic Christian, Coptic Orthodox Christian from Egypt. And um, we came from very different walks of life. But the more we talked, the more we realized that uh, we share a lot of emotions and we share a lot of frustrations about identity and how we see the world and how we uh, see America and what it means to be living as modern women of ancient faiths and what that means to navigate that life. Um, our goal with the show is a little multifaceted, dual-pronged, if you will. One is we want to be a um, a trusted source for people to come to uh, for takes on things that they wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. Um, like I said, I'm from Egypt, so I, I look at the world in a very different way than somebody who is from the U.S. or Tennessee or Mississippi. Um, and Adela is a, a Jewish, Lebanese, Syrian um, woman, so she looks at the world in a different way. Um, so we want to introduce new topics to people and, and give them our hot takes on things. Um, the other is to share with people our frustrations about identity and culture and faith. Um, and we want to uh, see what resonates with them and, and kind of explore these topics with them and um, find ways to get to answers about the really big questions of life. Um, Adela, did I miss anything? No, I think you got it all. So how did your families come to America? For instance, I know that you talked about this in the first episode. Sure. Um, so my mom entered her name in the uh, diversity lottery visa, which is a visa that the U.S. gives out. And it's exactly like it sounds, but not really. Um, so it is a lottery. Your name does get picked randomly. But uh, before you actually get handed an American passport, American visa, a green card, um, you do have to go through many, many years of vetting and making sure you're a person who deserves to come to the U.S. Um, so in around 2004, 2005, my mom threw her name in a hat through a church gathering. And um, a few years later, we ended up in Queens. Um, Adela has a very interesting story about that. So my story is a little bit different. Um, my family is from Syria and from Lebanon, and they actually went to Mexico because there was a very big Jewish community in Mexico, specifically a Syrian Jewish community in Mexico. So um, my mom grew up in Mexico. My dad was already in the Syrian community in Mexico. They got married, had my brother and me. And um, in the late 90s, Mexico was extremely unsafe. There were uh, kidnappings. There were constantly constant, um, constant clashes. Um, between kidnappings and um, later the Jewish community. So one thing led to another, and my family decided to move to the United States. We ended up in Deal, New Jersey, which is a small town, but the town the plan was never to stay. The plan was to stay for about three years and until things got safer. And my mom fell in love with the United States. Um, after that, we started trying to apply for 
every permanent visa, including the green card lottery, and we lost the lottery three times. So now we're still on different visas, but we love the U.S. We know it's our home, and we know that this is where we want to continue to build our future. So hopefully within the next few years, we'll try again, and I will be American, but um, I really grew up with this, you know, this idea of being America, coming to America, and what all that means. So, Miriam, in the episode, you uh, talked also about living in America with freedom while your family and community had a history and a memory of living under oppression and persecution in Egypt. So how did that affect you? That's a really great question. Um, so for people who are familiar with the Coptic community, um, the Coptic Orthodox Church are the indigenous Christians of Egypt. They've been there since the first century. They were actually one of the first um, people converted into Christianity after um, Mark the Evangelist came to Alexandria. Um, and ever since the 6th or 7th century, the Arab invasion of North Africa, um, they've been a persecuted community and a minority. And uh, the situation gets better and worse through different centuries. Um, but in the end, uh, they, we are still a, a very much persecuted uh, community. Coming to America was a, a crazy culture shock. Uh, being a Christian in an Arab country um, is one thing, and then being a Christian in America is a completely different thing. Um, so while I still viewed myself as a minority and kind of held my faith really, really closely to myself and, and didn't want to share it with people because if I did that in Egypt, it would be illegal and my family would face social and legal uh, repercussions. While in the U.S., where there's majority Christians and um, Christians generally don't get um, persecuted based on the religion. Um, it's a different shift, and it took a few years. And I, I think it, I'm still adjusting to it, honestly, even after you know 13, 14 years. But I, I still see myself as a minority, even though I'm not. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, and I know, like we, you know, run different articles um, by different Coptic Christians and uh, or cover the topic, and so I've you know seen different people write about similar issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Adela, in that same kind of part of the episode, you talked about like going to college and kind of talking about the difference between being a hater and a revolutionary and kind of your cultural identity growing up. So could you explain that a little bit? Of course. So um, I'm a Syrian Jew, and I don't know how much you know about Syrian Jews, but we are a tight-knit community, and we have very specific traditions that are mixed between Arab culture and Jewish practice. So um, the Syrian community has different pockets around the world. Mexico has a pocket. Uh, the main community is in Brooklyn. They have one in New Jersey. Brazil has a big Syrian community. And our practices are mainly the same. Um, so when I got to the U.S., I didn't really have that intense culture shock between Mexico and the U.S. because I really moved from one community to the same community but somewhere else. But um, my big shock was college um, because in, in my community, women – Either they didn't go to college much, and even when they did, they didn't necessarily dorm. They didn't really partake in school activities. If they did dorm in college, they would really just keep to their Jewish circles, and I wanted to step out of that. And Mariam and I both had this experience where when we got to college, we said, okay, it's time to branch out. It's time to look away. And it's very easy when you leave what you come from to look back and think, oh, I was being held back, and I was being indoctrinated with all these views. And that's the hater phase. And I think a lot of kids that grow up religious do have a hater phase, but the important thing is turning around and saying, I love where I came from. I love the values I have. I love the way it shaped the way I view the world. But what I have to do now is be a revolutionary, which is changing it from within. Um, not in a bad way, not in a you know flip the table, 
but in showing that, you know, we're in a different place. We're not in Syria anymore. We're not in Mexico anymore. We're in the United States. And in the United States, women go to college and women work and it's okay for women to do these things and it shouldn't be a social stigma. So um, by me going to college, you know, and doing everything I was able to do between my Israel activism and uh, a lot of different things, um, I ended up serving as an example. So, you know, now I have young girls in the community who say, well, what is NYU like? What's the process like to apply? And now I'm in law school and I'm the first person in my family to get a secondary degree. Uh, not a lot of girls in the Syrian community go to law school. So now I'm serving as an example and a resource for them on that too. So my next couple of questions here are kind of similar. Like the first one is like, what does cultural heritage mean for you to like, how, how does that affect you today? So Miriam, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit of a complicated question for cops because our culture and our religion are so intertwined. Um, and at some point they essentially become one with a little sprinkle of Arab, um, Arab culture and, and Arab faith and even Islam. There's some cultural things that my family does that um, ha are a product of living in a Arab Muslim country for centuries. Um, so cultural heritage for me and the way I'm trying to practice it now is understanding the layers of it, um, seeing what you want to keep, seeing what you don't want to keep, and kind of creating this hodgepodge of cultural identity for yourself. Um, and I think growing up uh, as a part of an immigrant community, part of the hair phase is you get this like prepackaged cultural heritage from your parents, from your grandparents. And generally speaking, you don't love it because it contains a lot of things that don't align with the way you see the world and the way you want to lead your life. Um, and one part of Adele and I's journey is kind of picking through this package of cultural heritage and seeing, hey, this is a really good value that I want to keep and I want to pass on to my children. And hey, this is not a great value that I maybe don't want to keep. And how can I fix it for the next generation? What about you, Adela? I think when it comes to cultural heritage, cultural identity, um, it's been actually a really fun journey for me to figure out what part of me is Syrian, what part of me is Mexican, and what part of me is Jewish, right? Because I have a lot of cultural heritage and I'm usually have some sort of different salient identity depending on who I'm with. Like if I'm in a group of, you know, Ashkenazi Jews, I'm the Sephardic Jew. If I'm in a group of American Jews, I'm a Mexican Jew. So yeah, it really um, is fun to pick it out because I'm still discovering what comes from where. Um, but I really think that the, the biggest thing is, um, you know, pride. I think I don't, didn't realize how different I was until, until I stepped out into the greater world. And I realized that a lot of people really want to learn. So um, I might not understand why my culture does a lot of things, but I'm happy to serve as, you know, an informational source for people. Um, and my, my favorite example of like, you know, all my culture is blending together and how that affects my everyday life is um, Passover. Because as a Mexican Sephardic Jew on Passover, we primarily eat tortillas. Um, why? Because as Sephardics, we can eat corn on Passover, which Ashkenazi Jews can't. And as a Mexican person, corn is a staple because we make tortillas. So for me growing up, Passover was about having Mexican food for seven days. So I'd go to school and be like, oh, so excited for the chilaquiles. And my friends would look at me and be like, what are you talking about? It's Passover. We're supposed to have like, you know, matzah dishes and these heavy meat things and matzah brai and all these things that were not really part of my Passover experience. So um, I think it's really fun to watch all the interactions. And I think that the more um, I learn about them, the more I appreciate them myself, too. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I um, had a friend who hosted a Passover for a Passover dinner for us. And so, so yeah, that, that would be a different experience with the uh, tortillas. So on the Provcast, we've talked a lot about, or we've talked some about nationalism and national identity, uh, which can be a kind of a tricky and a fluid topic. So in the first episode of you know, American-ish, you two talked about your relationship with national identity. So how do you view that? So my national identity is as complex as anything. Um, I'm Egyptian Coptic. So um, a lot of my internal discussions are about, am I an Arab? Uh, being a Copt essentially means that you're, my ancestors uh, resisted the Arab invasion of North Africa. Um, and that's why I'm still Coptic. I didn't convert to Islam. And my ancestors didn't convert to Islam. So does that make me an Arab, even though I speak Arabic, I have Egyptian citizenship, I eat Egyptian food. Um, so that's one facet of it. Um, the other facet of it that was really big in shaping who I am right now is um, Arab nationalism and pan-Arabism. Uh, when I was going through college, I took this class about pan-Arabism. And um, we discussed uh, Nasser, who was uh, one, one of the, the first president of Egypt. And he kind of was the founding father of Arab nationalism and seeing, uh, trying to bring Arab countries together to kind of create this uh, pan-Arab identity. And I became so obsessed with nationalism and I came especially obsessed with Arab nationalism because at the time it afforded minorities like Copts, like Greeks, like Armenians, like Jews, all living in Muslim countries, the opportunity to identify as an Arab. You were grouped in because you had this bigger thing to look up to. Um, and I think part of the reason I was attracted to it, because it was a way for me to not feel left out of my Egyptian identity. Um, and I, it, what happened in, in the Arab world is that Arab nationalism had a really hot streak where it was really popular for a few hundred years, and then it kind of slowly died out. And some people may even see it, say it was unsuccessful. Um, so my journey with it was kind of like those few hundred years condensed into maybe three or four years. So I went through a stage where I was really skeptical. I loved Arab nationalism. And then I came right back down to earth and realized that it wasn't going to afford minorities the, the rights that it, it promised to. And now I'm trying to figure out what nationalism means to me as an American, um, as an American-ish, I would say, because I'm still Egyptian, I'm still Coptic, but I'm an American. So how can I be um, an American with all those other layers? What about you, Adela? So for me, nationality is something I realized is transient because being born somewhere doesn't necessarily make you that thing, right? My family was from Syria and Lebanon and they spread around the world. So I have cousins in Brazil. I was born in Mexico. I have cousins in Montreal. I have cousins in Monaco, in Paris, in London. Um, they're pretty much everywhere. And we're all really from the same family. What I think nationalism should be around is a set of common values of where you want to be and where you want to go. And that's why living in the United States kind of shed some light on what nationalism should be to me. Um, you know, in the first episode, we talk about this hypothetical situation of if there's a world war tomorrow, who are you fighting for? And I know that I respect Mexico for what it did for my family, but I've spent the last 20 years and I'm only 25 in the United States. So am I actually giving my life to Mexico? I don't think so. Uh, Syria, again, uh, kicked my family out. Lebanon was not a good place for my family either. So I don't think I'd give my life to protect them either. And that would only leave two identities, right? Which is my Jewish identity and my identity as someone who is American-ish. 
So I think that when it comes to nationality, it's dangerous to militarize it and use it against others. But in terms of coalescing around an important value, I think what makes you American isn't being born in the U.S. It's knowing what the United States is, believing in that mission and being able to you know, fight for it um, intellectually in whichever way, why the American way of life is the way of life that I, as someone who is Syrian, Lebanese, Mexican, Jewish, would like to choose. And uh, so, Miriam, you uh, grew up in New York, right? You said Queens. Is that right? Yes, Ridgewood, Queens. Actually, I didn't know all the boroughs until you know, a few years ago. But <laughs> anyway, so you grew up in Queens. Um, yes. And Adela, you grew up in New Jersey, live in Manhattan, correct? Yes, live in Manhattan. Okay. Yes. And so, you know, these, you know, New York has its own identity culture that's distinct from other parts of America. For example, like I grew up in Mississippi and whenever I watch shows growing up, you know, that so many of them are based in New York. And uh, it always felt like, yes, you know, New York and Mississippi were both Americans, but what they were depicting, it felt sometimes like something that other people were doing over there and not necessarily something that was connected to what life was like in Mississippi. And so my question is, like, what other experiences have you had with, you know, America outside New York and how your American-ish identity kind of fits into that? The beauty of New York is that no matter how other you feel, like you feel like an other, an outsider, you never really are because every New Yorker that I know is not really from New York. Uh, there's very few New Yorker New Yorkers are all transplants at the end of the day. and. That's the beauty of the city is that uh, no matter how much of a minority you feel, um, you will find a place to fit in. Uh, but to answer your question, I hadn't really traveled outside of this tri-state area until maybe this year or maybe end of last year for work. And um, in a span of like three months, I was able to do L.A., Texas, um, Atlanta and see all these like cultural hubs that I had heard about, but I haven't really experienced. And um, this is a little crazy to say, but it feels like every time I go to a new city, especially I felt this, especially for Texas, it felt like I was visiting a different country. Um, I'm used to like what I thought was uh, normal New Yorkers, just not talking to you. Everybody's keeping it to themselves, mind your business to landing in Texas and my Uber driver in Dallas talking to me for the whole 45 minute drive and trying to convince me to move to Texas, by the way. Um, and Atlanta had a different vibe and a different feel and the people were different. The way they interact is different. Um, so every little pocket in the U.S. is kind of like its own little environment and it operates within itself. Yeah, I kind of had a similar experience when, uh, you know, I you know, moved from Mississippi to the D.C. area. Like um, when I would go for a run in Mississippi, it was very common. Like I'd be running and people would run by and kind of wave and nod. Mm -hmm. And then I did that when I arrived to Maryland and the people like looked at me weird. So. <laughs> yeah, so, that's yeah, how could... you get jumped in New York. You don't say hi to people. <laughs> yeah, so um, it's those little differences that kind of uh, interesting. What about you, Adela? Yeah, so I, I got to grow up in a little suburb in New Jersey. So we were extremely open and everyone rode their bikes and waved to each other. Um, but we were also a very insular group. So we all pretty much knew each other. I grew up in small town America, what you imagine when you see American movies of the girl that lives in the suburbs and they ride their bikes on Saturdays. So nice. Um, it was great. And then moving to New York was, again, like Mariam said, like, no one really smiles. I remember one person, um, you know, I was walking with my friend and she's like, I could tell that you just got here. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you look up instead of straight. <laughs> and that was interesting. I didn't realize other people didn't look up when they walked, especially with the skyscrapers. Um, 
but I did spend some time in South Carolina. I spent about two weeks in South Carolina and it was amazing. Um, also because I have, I call being Jewish a superpower. So I have the superpower of having a community wherever I go. So I showed up to South Carolina, went to a random synagogue that was full of retirees. And, um, you know, they invited me out to dinner and they asked about me and they kept talking to me and it was so nice and so warm and open. Um, so I would say that, yeah, the, the U S is very different, um, wherever you go. And, you know, Miami being the exception because Miami might as well be Latin America. You do not hear a single word of English. It is as a Mexican person, I feel at home. So my last question here is, you know, being a, you know, foreign policy podcast, I know we also talk about American issues too, but you know, my question here is how do your backgrounds affect how you view global affairs and foreign policy? Great question, Mark. Um, so I view foreign policy from an American standpoint, from an Arab standpoint, from an Egyptian standpoint. I think one of my biggest assets is that I can step into different shoes of different countries and look at it the way they look at it. Um, so the way I view foreign policy, especially things that happen in the Arab world, is first I put on my American hat and see what would be most beneficial to America, what would be uh, the American thing to do. Um, and then I put on my Egyptian hat and my Arab hat um, and view and, and look at my own decision that I had just made the minute prior. Um, so that's in a very layman way how I view um how my culture affects or how my identity affects the way I view um, foreign policy. So, you know, so when it comes to foreign policy, um, it's interesting because I almost primarily see it from the point of view of a full-blooded, born and raised American. Um, I'd say the only thing that comes to play, since we talked about nationality being transient, um, the one identity I've always had with me that no one can take away, that no one can say I'm not, the one thing that's been a constant through my entire family history is Judaism. So I'd say that really affects my views on foreign policy in two ways. Um, number one, in terms of values, uh, Judaism, of course, has a set of values. And there's some things that are unethical in terms of Judaism. And there's, there's for example, like um, a rule in Judaism uh, called Shaluah Hakan, which means the sending away of the bird, which is, you know, if you're in the position where you have to take the eggs for sustenance of a bird, you have to send away the mother to not cause her anguish. And from there, we derive a lot of Jewish principles of unnecessary suffering and things like that. So that definitely affects my view on foreign policy, but um, also in terms of, you know, because nationality is transient, as a Jew, I know I home, have a home in Israel. It's the only place where I know I'll fully be accepted, that in the United States. It's the two places where I feel fully comfortable with my Jewish identity. So that completely affects my view on foreign policy. Um, but primarily, yes, from the U.S. standpoint, it's interesting because as much as I am from Mexico and I come from the Middle East, that plays a very small role in the way I view things. Because again, I see my future here in the United States. And this is where I think um, I would want to continue to build. So I have to look out for the U.S. interests. Well, Miriam and uh, Adela, thank you so much for joining us on the Profcast today. Thank you so much for having us. This was a pleasure. This was really great. Thank you, Mark. And for listeners, I will post in the show notes links to the Americanish Daughters of Diaspora, where you'll be able to watch this episode. It is a video podcast, right? Yes. Okay.